0: it's Jason Thomas's industry seating, presented by Pirelli Tires and brought to you by Blendzall and Fly Racing. All right, it's time for episode three. This is industry seating. I am Jason Thomas. This is brought to you by Pirelli Tires, Blendzall Oils, and Fly Racing, and we are coming out of St. Louis. So, uh, you know, I think everybody had a lot of questions coming out of Anaheim 1. You never really know if what we see is for real. Uh, There's so many nerves and so many things that just don't seem like they can be sustainable leaving Anaheim 1. And then we go back east somewhat to St. Louis and freezing cold and the dirt's a lot softer and... You just get you get a little bit different picture and you see these guys have some some curveballs thrown at them and how are they going to adapt to uh, just a change after a one and they left there with some of them had a great result at day one and everything's awesome some of them didn't some of them had a lot of adversity they had to overcome and and honestly take a look in the mirror and face some adversity and and figure it out before they went into round two so I always love to watch the riders have to respond and figure things out both with themselves and the bike. And uh, there's a lot to be said for guys bouncing back and uh, all the process that goes into that. So, you know, the, the guys that basically won figure, literally and figuratively a one, you know, Justin Barsha and in the 250 class, Justin Cooper, I'm sure they had a great week. (laughs) They probably went to dinner and, you know, celebrating and, and spirits were high and then going into St. Louis, you know, Saturday, you kind of start over and A one almost doesn't matter. For Justin Barsha, what a what a backup ride that was. Uh, I think most people were wondering if this, this A one was going to be anything like the A one of 2019, where great ride, but it was in the mud. And then honestly, we didn't see a lot of that the rest of the season from him. He was he was fine. But I think even now he looks back on 2019 season and, and he knew that it was going to be difficult with the motorcycle challenges they faced. Uh, I don't think he was very comfortable on the bike, even though he won the Anaheim opener. He just didn't have a great feeling about the series. We'll flash forward to 2020. He made comments last weekend after the race that this was going to be totally different. And they were, even though the result was the same, they got a win at the opener. The, the confidence moving forward for the entire series was in a totally different place, the motorcycle is in a totally different place, and he, respect, he expects the results going down the stretch to be in a totally different place. Well, I kind of shook my head at that because I think everyone would say that. It's like, oh, yeah, this, this time it's different. I think that's the, the cliche thing to say, but I give him a lot of respect. He backed it up at St. Louis. Uh, he got the start. He was able to have a pace that put him away from the pack. He was able to pass Zach Osborne, and honestly, there was a there was a melee going on behind him between Cincerillo and Osborne and Jason Anderson and Eli Tomac even came up into there. He was able to pull away from that and, and get away. Uh, sure, he did not catch Ken Roczen. You know, Kenny was on his kind of in his own world in that main event, but to be able to ride in front of those guys coming off of all the expectation of you know you have the red plate, what are you going to do with it type thing. I thought he rode incredibly well. I thought it was a big statement, too, uh, for those of you who weren't at the race. I know you can't see some of this stuff, but in, in time qualifying and in the, in the early practice sessions, he went out right away and went straight to the front. And that, that's a total confidence thing. We've seen that in, in the 250 class and the 450 class. The guys that go to the front early, it's almost like they have something to prove, and it just really speaks to their confidence level. So for him to do that right away at the second round, I thought spoke volumes about where he thinks he is in this series. Obviously he's at the front points wise, but just mentally and confidence wise, I thought it was a pretty big statement. He was the first one to jump over the tabletop in the first time qualifying session. That was just another one of those subtle things that we watch for that are like, man, he's he's feeling it. Like this he could be onto something here. So like I said, nothing but respect for Justin Barsha's second round. Kenny Roxon. Uh, let's, uh, let's get into Kenny for a second. You know, last year, so many races where, you know, we thought he was going to win. We thought it was going to be that emotional moment after Anaheim two of 2017, where he's going to get that first win and really jump back into the Kenny of old. Well, Cooper Webb had other plans for that last year. A two, they were battling it out. Cooper Webb won out Arlington battling. Cooper Webb went out. So you're just wondering, when is the other shoe going to fall for Kenny? Like, it's got to happen eventually. And then, you know, it was so difficult for him, and Jason Wygant made mention of this, it, it seems so difficult to finally win. And then he goes out this weekend in St. Louis, and it's it looked like it was a breeze for him. He, he made a move on Zach Osborne early. Pretty aggressive, but I think, you know, you could tell that he knew that he had an opportunity to get away. Uh, I think he felt like his pace was a little bit better than Zach's, and if he got out front, and had a clear track, he could really use that to his advantage and and make life easy on himself. What we saw is he he did exactly that. He executed that game plan, made it early pass, and then, honestly, it didn't look all that difficult for him. And, And we always say that, right? It's Trust me, the pace he's going, it's really difficult. To, to hold that pace for 21 minutes. But then again, he didn't have to battle anybody. He got away and then was able to pick his lines. He could open the corners up, as we say, without worrying about somebody coming up his inside. And, and if you looked at the battle behind him, that battle I, I previously mentioned with Tomac and Osborne and Cincirillo and Anderson and on and on, those guys were constantly riding defensively. So what I mean by that is as they're coming into a corner – They can choose whatever entry point they want. And if you're in a battle that way, you really can't. Your first thought has to be, is there someone on my inside that's going to make a block pass here? And if there is, if there's any chance of that, you have to move your entry point a little bit more inside, take a defensive line, which in essence slows you down coming out of the corner. So for Kenny, getting that gap was critical because he could turn in his best lap times. He could choose any line he wanted. He could be creative on the racetrack. And he could ride pressure-free. As I was talking about Justin Barsha, the same thing. Once Barsha got to second and got a gap, he was able to do the same thing. So you really saw those front two guys of, of Kenny and Justin Barsha able to do their own thing. They could pick their own lines. And like I said, it, it looks easy, but they created that situation for themselves. They, they put themselves in a place where they could ride that way, and they didn't have to worry about anybody else. You could say that Zach Osborne had that opportunity, he grabbed the whole shot, great start from him, great bounce back from a horrible A1, but he just he just didn't have that little bit of speed necessary to get that gap. And you saw Kenny get him, and then you saw Barsha get him, and then he was a, he was in a battle almost the entire race. Uh, he almost felt bad for him because there was never a moment where he wasn't under fire or under pressure from somebody. I think most notably the move that Adam Cincerillo put on him, he finally— hit his breaking point and I think Adam went in there a little bit hotter than he planned on and it was that section just before doubling over the the start straight Adam came in there and put a pretty nasty block pass on him and uh, I think Zach just he lost his temper a little bit and finally had enough and you saw him immediately strike back and and I don't want to say go for the kill but he certainly went in there to make contact and, and make a point and you know the history that Adam and Zach have had going back to their 250 days so I was wondering where that would kind of go and if that was going to explode into somebody ending up on the ground. But luckily, cooler heads prevailed. Nobody crashed. But I think the, the biggest result of that impact was uh, Adam Cincerello. It kind of derailed his momentum because he was really on a charge forward. Uh, we saw how great he was at A1, and, and he was great again in St. Louis. And you're wondering, okay, he's on a march. I think he was headed towards the podium. I think he would have gotten up there and and, and battled with Jason Anderson up there. But that really pushed him back, and he kind of never regained that fire. Uh, He was able to sustain where he was. You know, he he did a great job of holding off Eli Tomac most of the race, but he just kind of lost that charge forward that he had. And then, of course, we saw Adam have a just silly tip over on the last lap, which cost him a couple spots. But just for going back to Zach Osborne, I thought he had a great opportunity to, you know, get on that podium, and you you'd wonder, you wonder, how much of a residual impact his uh, his flu had from a one. We saw Cooper Webb was nowhere near ready yet. You know, he he suffered all day and all night. Zach was certainly better. I spoke with him a little bit on Saturday and, and going into the race, and he was certainly better. But it takes a it takes a while to get back to your your you know, peak fitness level after an illness like that, you know, especially when you push your body to the limit as he was in the main event. I don't think he was all the way back yet. So we'll we'll watch for him to see if that comes back even more for A2. I think the most critical thing, and this is going to be a recurring theme, the most critical aspect of that for Zach is continuing to put himself at the front. If he can get the starts, stay at the front, and maintain that pace, it's going to get easier. It's going to just every single time he puts up there, the pressure is going to come down, the nervousness, the nervousness is going to come down. And I think he'll be able to find that next gear the way that Ken Roxon and Justin Barsha were. Because if you watch those two, they kind of had this been there, done that vibe to them when they got the good starts uh, at both rounds so far. And I didn't really get that feeling from Zach yet. So, There's a lot that goes into that. You know, there's just that 1% of of raw speed that it takes to sprint away at the beginning. And I think, too, it's just kind of a situational awareness thing where Zach hasn't been up there that often in the 450 class yet. And I say yet because I think that's coming. I think Zach, even though he's, you know, he's a veteran as far as age-wise – this is only his second year of 450 Supercross racing, and he missed a lot of the season last year due to injury. So, a lot of this is newness to him. He's racing guys he really hasn't raced against very often. And that's just going to, like I said, it's going to get easier. But the critical part of that is putting himself at the front at the beginning so he has a chance to succeed. Moving on to another guy, Adam Cincerillo. I kind of touched on him a minute ago, but holy cow, what a day that guy's had. And if you're not keeping score at home, that's six practice sessions slash qualifying sessions in a row that he's topped the charts and for those of you who haven't you know watched race day live to see that these qualifying sessions it really hasn't been close uh the last one that jumped off the page to me he was eight tenths of a second better than the second place guy and listen i know eight tenths of a second doesn't sound like a lot but if you've been around these races, it, it's like a 10th or two that these guys are worried about because they're, they are eking out every little bit of speed on the track that's possible. They're analyzing video. They have Lit Pro to, to download data. It's really technical now to find out where these guys are losing time. So to almost find a full second, that speaks volumes about the pace that Adam Cincerillo is capable of. And the crazy part to me is it looks effortless. He's not putting in these hero laps that I've seen from let's say Austin Forkner in the 250 class last year and some of these guys just go into some other realm in these qualifying sessions to pull out this lap. That's not what AC's doing. He he's putting in race level laps in qualifying sessions and he's able to repeat them. That's that's the scary part, of, you know, for, if you're a contender and you're wondering about Adam Sincerillo's viability for this series, just go back and watch his qualifying sessions and see how easy he's able to go that fast. So something to watch for. Obviously the results on paper this weekend suffered a little bit from that last lap crash. But I'll be I'll be honest, I was one of the ones that thought it was a bit premature to think Cincerilla was a title contender. I am not there anymore. I think he can absolutely be in this thing, especially if you look at, you know, Tomac's struggles a little bit. He he was much better this weekend, and we'll touch on that. Cooper Webb had a really tough St. Louis round still ailing from his, his flu like symptoms. Uh, Justin Barsha has been great. There's nothing you can say about Justin Barsha as far as a negative side, but Ken Roxon, you know, he's put a six and a one on the board, so it hasn't been domination at this point. So I think the door is still wide open for Censorillo. Listen, you know, it's going to be a long series. It's easy to make rash assumptions two rounds in but if you were wondering if AC's for real, <laughs> I think we can put that to bed. Um, the The big challenge for him is going to be in his rookie season in the 450 class. He's never raced this many races before, and you know you heard it from Zach Osborne last year. You've heard it from virtually everybody who's ever done it. Your first season of 450 racing, where you go 17 rounds out of 18 weekends it's tough it wears on these guys the travel uh, you just get fatigued so that's going to be something we have to watch for down the stretch with adam too is can he keep this elite level of intensity where he just has a speed edge can he keep that up and that that'll that'll work itself out there's no way to know that i do think he's going to be relevant at the front but to to think he's going to be just the fastest guy every single time out on the track over and over to keep that up that that seems unsustainable to me but he's been impressive to say the least uh, moving down, Eli Tomac. So you know, you look at it on paper. Um, you know, seven four, not the end of the world. You know, pretty good, but it's still that January kind of wonder. You know, January's never been good for Eli. It just it hasn't worked out big picture for Eli, and we're kind of seeing that same thing again. And and I've wrote about this. I've talked about this. How deep is the hole going to be? For Eli Tomac, once he catches fire. Because we know he's going to. He's done it every single year. He goes on this run where there is no doubt who the best guy in the series is. Well, I shouldn't say that Webb was pretty darn good last year, but most people understand that that Eli Tomac is, if not the best guy, right there. But he's he's fighting him with his way out of this hole. He did it with Ryan Dungey, he did it with Jason Anderson, he had, you know, failed to do it with Cooper Webb again last year. So you wonder where he's gonna be. When that changeover happens, you know, is it Daytona? Is it Detroit? When does it come? When does Eli Tomac show up and everybody goes, uh-oh, this guy's by far the best guy in the series. How many points does he have to catch up? So that's what I'm wondering. I I, I was hoping, you know, if you're an Eli Tomac fan, you're definitely hoping that he could figure it out in January and he could go into, you know, the Oakland round, the San Diego round, even with the red plate, I think it would be over. I think this series would be done for all intent and purposes if he if he went into February at the red plate. Well, probably not going to happen. Uh, he's seven and four. He's given up a ton of points points to Barsha already. Unless he can reel off a couple wins here, we're probably going to be facing that same situation where he's down and looking up and and has to reel off a bunch of wins. I will say the upside for him is that his big contenders, you know, Cooper Webb. Ken Roxon, I think those would probably be your number, your one and your number two for guys he's most concerned about going into this series. They haven't dominated. Uh, Cooper Webb had a horrible, horrible round this weekend, as we talked about. Roxon, yeah, a little scary this weekend if, if you're looking at a series. But they haven't racked up, you know, 52 points, which would be the maximum after two rounds. That's not on the board. I wonder though how Eli Tomac views Justin Barsha because. Big picture over the years, I don't think he's really seen him as somebody that is, you know, someone he can't overcome or somebody he can't beat week in and week out. And that, that sounds like a slight against Barsha. But again, remember, I'm looking at this from how I perceive Eli Tomac's perspective is. I just think Eli Tomac believes deep down he has Barsha covered. And the results would bear that out. If you look at it on paper, there is good reason for him to believe that. That's just something difficult to swallow if you're Justin Barsha or a Justin Barsha fan after two rounds of the series. So if you know if you're Eli Tomac and you have to spot someone, uh, you know a a two or a one-two on the board going in after two rounds. I wonder if he wouldn't pick Justin Barsha. You just wonder who he would want to spot those points to if it's not Justin Barsha. Yeah, okay, you pick somebody way down the scale of you know, maybe Justin Brayton or somebody that he he's certainly not worried about for 17 rounds. Sorry, JB. Uh, but I think Justin Barsha would be near the top of relevant guys that he would be okay with spotting a points lead to. Because if you look at the Dungies and the Webs, those are guys that, Listen, you give those guys points, you give them confidence. It's going to be really difficult to to get it back. I think Justin Barsha is going to have a few rounds this series where it just didn't go his way. He crashed, or who knows? Because he's always had that. You know, on the 450, it's always gone that way. We don't have any any cases where it's like, yep, he just held us together every single round all the way down the stretch on a 450, and you know that that's how it went. It's always kind of gone the other way, so. Um, yeah, it'll be interesting. It's just another another thing we'll have to see how that bears out. But um, yeah, I don't think Eli is hitting the panic button. If you watched him ride this weekend, he was much much better than he was at Anaheim one. As was Ken Roxon. Both of those guys rebounded nicely. Certainly, Kenny's win spoke volumes a little bit more than uh, than Eli, Eli's ride. But Eli was in 18th place at one point. I was looking back, and, and I'm like, how can you get that bad of a start? How is it possible for someone with that much talent on that grade of equipment to be in 18th place on the first lap? I, I was blown away, almost frustrated, and I have no vested interest in it, but I know what he's capable of, and he's just he's shooting himself in the foot. So to see him come all the way back past those guys and, and the aggression level he had, uh, he was he was showing a lot of innovation with his passing lines. He wasn't hesitating at all which is big uh, because he he just didn't have any of that at A1. He wasn't able to move forward. He was kind of waiting on guys, and and I know the arm pump thing is a good reason for that. But, I mean, honestly, when you looked at his riding at A1, you're just like, this isn't the title winner. This isn't the Eli Tomac that's going to win 8 to 10 races this season. So it was nice to see that Eli back, and I, I think it's foreboding of what we'll see. I think if you're one of the other guys, you're like, well, is still going to be there. You know, you're wondering if he's kind of lost a step. That's not the case. He's going to win a bunch of races this year. I'm, I'm pretty confident of that. But he's got to figure out the start. I mean, his starts were hot garbage. They were terrible. And, you know, you can say, okay, the start wasn't that bad. Well, the first lap is a big part of that too. So it's all the package. You have to put yourself in good positions. He's going to do it. We've seen him whole shot a lot of races, so it's not like he's incapable it's the consistency. It's constantly putting yourself behind the eight ball on that first lap. That hurts. That's going to eventually catch up with you over a series, and we've seen it the last three years. Um, he's he's got to figure that out, and it looks like he hasn't quite yet. But I think it's coming. As far as you know, there will be several rounds where he starts well enough to get himself to the front. So, um, all you Mookie fans out there, <laughs> listen. That guy in the Whoops is. It's art. I mean, I don't even know what to attribute it to, other than he is just not scared. I mean, he was coming out of the corner, and and the listen, the whoops were easy this weekend. They were not challenging. They weren't difficult. But his ability to go that much faster through them is not normal. (laughs) Like his his brother was capable of doing that at times, but that's I don't even know what to attribute it to, other than he just holds a throttle wide open and he's not scared of what's going to happen. The other guys are going fast too. It's not like they're not the best in the world at doing this, but when you watch him pass three guys in one whoop section, that's pretty abnormal. And that's just a, that's skill level and, and fearlessness on a different level. So kudos to him. Great job. Unbelievable. The next step for him is to translate that into a podium level finish. Well, let's say even top five. So I believe he was sixth on the weekend uh, that's up from a ninth at A1. Uh, we've made mention a few times that he still doesn't have a top five finish in the 450 class, but you got to think it's coming. Uh, I was a little bit taken aback by Eli Tomac's ability to pass him, both in the heat race and in the main event, kind of at will. I mean, he didn't even wait. There was no no pause or... Uh, Mookie didn't really seem to have an answer for it so that just goes to show where maybe Eli's level is versus Mookie's and, and where Mookie still has to to strive to attain to but uh, I do think Mookie is on the right track which is good um, he just needs to keep building right last year he got hurt so early in the season and then was done until Monster Cup he didn't even get a chance to really put any any building blocks together so I think that's really really important is for him to keep getting better And if he keeps putting 21 minute mains together, it's going to get easier. And then he's going to really be able to wield that speed sword he has. And he's going to find a track where the whoops really work to his advantage. And then that's where you're going to see the big opportunity come on a track like Glendale last year, where he got hurt on a track where the whoops really can determine the outcome of the race. That's where Mookie's going to be, has to be opportunistic and say, this is my night. I've got to make the most of these whoops and and go out and try to get that podium. So We'll keep an eye on that too. Blake Baggett. Um, not bad night. I thought he actually looked pretty good, but Stark killed him. So he could not pass Justin Hill to save his life. I know that he was super frustrated after the race. It's just he could not find a way around. The team was frustrated too because he had more in the tank. He had speed to burn. He just couldn't he couldn't get around him, you know, and, and the lines that Eli Tomac was using, Adam Stenrillo was using. Even Ken Rockson early in the race, they were hyper-aggressive in making their passes. It just didn't seem like Blake could could make that happen. And, and you saw a little bit of that in the heat race too. He got stuck behind Cooper Webb, and I kept waiting for him to, to stick a wheel in here or there, and it just wasn't coming together for him. So I, I know that'll be a big focus this week. I heard Michael Byrne talking to him about it and things they needed to work on or strategy in that exact scenario of where he could make a move. you got to open up your you broaden your horizons a little bit and say, okay, what I'm doing is not working where possible on this racetrack. Can I make a pass? And then you, you focus everything you have on getting close in that section and you executing that pass. So we'll see if that, you know, going down the stretch here in that scenario, if he gets better at that, because I know, like I said, I know that's going to be a big focus for them. Uh, the last rider I have to make note of in the 450 here, Justin Brayton. So Brayton's to me, I think he's been great. Uh, you know, Steve Mathis on the Racer X review, he was kind of—I don't want to say down on Brayton, but he was asking questions about, you know, why is he going backwards uh, late in the race? And I have the same questions, but I'm not just not as down on it. Uh, I, I've listen, I've done this off-season thing, and I don't want to beat a dead horse here, but it takes a toll. It absolutely flying all over the world, being on pl- airplanes for 24 hours straight. There's no way to maintain the top level fitness that you that you would want doing that much traveling and that much racing you can't do it and and for you know case in point look at the schedule that alden baker asks of his guys no racing we're gonna okay you can race monster cup or whatever but we're done once november one hits we're not flying anywhere we're not going anywhere we're not racing we're going to put everything we have into our training so that we're strong for 21 minutes and it pays dividends. We, we've seen it year in and year out. That's, that's what they do. That's why they do it. And it works. So for Justin Brayton, you're coming off a, you know, a few hundred grand in this off season. I think there's a price to pay for that. I know I felt it in my own racing. And I think we're seeing that bear out with Justin Brayton. He's sharp, Like right? His qualifying is good. His starts are good. His speed's good, but late in the race, I think he suffers a little bit because he wasn't able to maintain all those training days in the offseason. The other variable there, where does the age play in? You know, he's 35 years old. Your body's, you know, it's it's more difficult to stay that strong at that age. I mean, it's just fact. It's not his fault. and And I'm not even saying that's a factor right now. I don't know. There's no way to prove it. But it certainly has to be brought up as if you're not able to maintain that elite level heart rate and, and intensity all the way to the end. Where does age factor in? It certainly has been a factor for Chad Reed in the last couple of years. I think everybody would admit that. So is it a factor for Brayton yet? I don't know. He's three years younger than Chad. We'll see. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's something that needs to be brought up anyway. So I want to take a second to uh, to mention our sponsors here. I, I mentioned Pirelli tires. We're gonna do uh, we're gonna do some email reads here pretty soon. We're gonna give away a set of Pirelli tires to uh, honestly just my choice. What I think the best email was. Uh, listen, go look at the the tires out there worldwide in MXGP. Pirelli dominates. They absolutely do, and that's there's, It's not a secret why those guys are choosing to go racing with Pirelli tires in Europe. Uh, I think they believe they have the absolute best choice for for off road tires. Uh, the U.S. It's a work in progress. I think they're getting. You know, I, I was excited to see them get back into racing with JGR this year. But listen, it's just the uh, you know it's perception and and getting more people to try Pirelli tires to get comfortable with them. I race with them. I've ridden with them. I I know those guys quite well, and and they're confident in what they have to offer. It's just getting more visibility and getting more people comfortable with their product, and I think they'll win people over. So that's what I would invite you to do. The next time you have to make a tire choice, or you're going to go out and spend your own money, give Pirelli a try. Hey, listen, if you don't like it, you'll have it. You'll have that choice again, right? Tires wear out, but I, I do think you're going to be very happy, especially. With their their off road their you know motocross selection, I, I have I'm on record as saying their front tire when I raced going back to 2012, their front tire was the best front tire I've ever used in my entire career, and I stand by that. So give them a try, give them a look. Blends all oils. Uh, the one oil I wanted to mention today is their Gold Label 485. So this one's pretty cool. It's um, it's kind of a jack of all trades, as they would say. You can use it in a two-stroke, two stroke, you can use it in a four-stroke, and it has benefits for both. Uh, the four-stroke's going to add, you know, some lubrication to it. The two-stroke, you're going to see quite a bit of performance boost. And uh, so that one's a little bit of a do-it-all and one they're really proud of that ha- can cross over and have added benefits for both. So that one's really versatile. A lot of you guys have two-strokes and four-strokes. I've had that in the past too. I think my ideal lineup would be to have a 450 because I spent a decade racing a 450, but I think the most fun bike you can possibly own is a 125. So that's, you know, that, that um, Gold Label 485 is one that I could use in both. So super versatile there. For all, uh they're in the midst of getting back, and, and they're going to ramp this thing up. So for now, go to your WPS dealer, and you can buy Blenzall from any authorized WPS dealer. So that's obviously great for me. You know, my employer is WPS, so it all works together. And then, last but not least, fly racing. Uh, as you can see in the background uh, for this video that we're doing, but uh, listen, fly racing's half of my life. It seems like it's. If I was married, I'd probably be married to fly racing at this point. So, uh, the Formula helmet's something we've been pushing for the last year and a half, and it's we're in no way to slow down now. Um, please come by. Supercross races. We have great activation. We have a lot of informative videos. You've seen the Formula uh, commercial. That's on TV now. And innovation-wise, I don't think there's anybody else out there pushing the envelope like the Formula is. And that's a very bold statement. And I weigh it. I weigh that statement pretty heavily. But I, I believe it. Uh, I really think that we've changed the game with the Formula helmet. So I don't. I don't take that lightly. I would encourage you to go do your research. For, you know, if you're going to buy a, an next level protection helmet, there are a lot of good options. And I'll be very transparent saying that there are good options out there. Do your research. There are plenty of ways to read up, watch videos, watch reviews. Uh, YouTube's a great resource. Go to flyracing.com. Um, check everybody out. I'm not saying you have to pick a formula right away just from my word, but I do believe when you go out you look at all the evidence and you weigh everything, you're going to come back to the formula and I stand by that. So getting into some of these other things, um, I want to start with some emails. So that's, uh, something I've been asking you guys to send in. I got a lot of great responses this week. Pretty cool. I, I love the interaction. I love the engagement. So as you can, you can hear, I've got a bunch of emails here to read. Um, first one here. So Nick, Nick basically, and I won't read the whole email. I just get to the point. He's asking, what happens if Webb gets hurt? As you guys know, Marvin Muskan, is, uh, he's out. He's out for the whole Supercross season. That leaves Red Bull KTM with one guy, Cooper Webb, defending champ, to go racing with. What do they do if he gets hurt? Uh, listen, that's a great question. I, I've had many people answer, and I, and I don't know that I have the end-all, be-all answer. But I think, I think the easy choice would be to go grab... Martin Davalos off of the, uh, the Monster Energy Team Tedder racing side and, and put him in that truck. <laughs> the scary part is that, as you guys have been watching, Marty hasn't had the greatest start to this series. Uh, he's probably crashed more than any other rider out there so far. But Marty has talent. Marty has a you know pretty big following. A lot of people know him, and I think he has the potential to do really well, which is what Red Bull KTM would want. They want guys that are capable of putting their bike on the podium. It's a, I think it's a stretch on the results page to say Marty's capable of it, but I, I do believe he is, and I think that would be the easy the easy switch over if you are uh, your Red Bull KTM would just beat a Marty. It would be Listen, it would be a devastating loss to lose Webb in the series after they've already lost Marvin. Uh, but, yeah, they, they still need to go racing, so I think that would be the move. So thanks, Nick. Good question there. I've been asked that several times, and I wanted to address that. Uh, another email here. Uh, this is from Zachary Deans. He's asking about Barsha and the chances he could end up at Red Bull KTM next year. Uh, I don't believe that is where he would go. That's just my personal opinion. I think Red Bull KTM is very happy with the lineup they have. I think they're going to do everything in their power to re sign Marvin and re sign Cooper Webb and go racing with the exact same team for 2021 20, 22. That would be a, a two year deal for both. I don't see any reason to go away from that personally. And the way Barsha's riding, why would he want to leave? The Yamaha's in a great place. They found some great settings. He seems very happy there. And for Yamaha, shoot, why would you want to let him go? Uh, You know, obviously finance is coming to play. And you never know what people's, what their deep down uh, motivations or maybe, maybe Barsha would want to change. I don't personally see it. I think he's happy there. I think Yamaha's happy, so I think he stays. I think you see him at at Monster Energy Yamaha for uh, for 21 and beyond. Uh, that just seems to make the most sense. We have a question for Randy here. So if you read my columns on RacerXOnline.com, um, if you listen to these podcasts, you've heard hear, heard me, excuse me, heard me say the tracks deteriorate. A one was notoriously bad for that. Um, he's just asking what that means. He's uh, you know just a normal rider. Um, he hears these terms: cupped out, whoops, square edge, bumps, uh, rice holes, which is a hangtown thing, and he's always wondered what that means or he wanted that expanded upon. So uh, yeah, t- t- so to me, it's just common knowledge, right? I talked to Chris Kiefer or Steve Mathis, and that's just uh, the lingo. That's like breathing that we've been around this our whole life. So I always have to take a step back and remember that. You know, there are new people to the sport. There are new fans every day. So this this super inside lingo needs to be explained sometimes. So I can appreciate that question, Randy. So basically, what it means you're on the right you're on the right track. Deteriorating just means that the ruts are getting deeper. There are halt breaking bumps. There are holes in sections uh, that just unsettle the bike. The stuff that riders have to deal with instead of just a really smooth track where the jumps come easy and they can pick any line they want. Now they have to think a little bit. Uh, now their settings come into play, where Ken Roxham was saying the bike was super stiff, and as the track got rougher, the bike stopped working as well. That's all we're talking about. When it deteriorates, it gets rougher, the ruts get deeper, uh, and that's just soft dirt breaking down, and as it's more pliable, but it starts to get tougher and tougher to ride. When we say cupped out whoops, that's from the rear tire hitting those whoops and dirt flying off of the whoop, and it's creating a hole and it's creating a, a really nasty ledge in the whoop that it's making it almost like a parking curb so typically a whoop is pretty round at the top that allows riders to drive off of that and drive forward so that's going to increase momentum well as a whoop gets cupped out as we would say that ledge becomes sharper and it almost becomes inverted back towards the rider well that's almost like hitting a parking curb it becomes a, a really hard impact on the rear tire and instead of that rear tire driving forward now it's a really harsh impact, and it's you're not getting that forward drive. So what happens is for a rider like Malcolm Stewart, who is incredibly good at driving into the whoops with a lot of speed, he will gain a ton of momentum out of the turn, and instead of almost checking up and then getting whoop into the whoops and then driving through them, you know, allowing the power to accelerate through them, he's more of the type of rider that gets his speed before the whoops and then allows himself to just continue on with that momentum. So his style really pays off when the whoops become difficult because that forward drive is so much tougher to, to get. You know, when that roundness of the whoop goes away, the rear tire is not able to drive forward. It's more of just a, a hard impact. So so Mookie Stewart, is is his style really becomes more valuable, and he you'll see that, I think, as the series goes on where he's able to just blow by guys, especially early in the whoops because he builds his momentum up earlier so that's some high level talk and but it is it's really really applicable to the racing because different styles pay off and you saw Mookie just blow by those guys in the Whoops this weekend those guys are kind of getting into the Whoops and then trying to accelerate through them where Malcolm was coming in five miles an hour faster and then that allowed him to just be that be going that much faster in the middle of them than they could so great question there to me, you know, it's, it seems basic for guys that have been racing at a high level their whole life, but I think it's really, really important to, uh, to explain some of that stuff. Will Dixon asks, um, for, this is a great question actually for fly racing gear. Um, uh, he has worn light hydrogen, uh, for the past few years. That's actually what I wear as well. He wants to check out the Evo stuff. And if, if you're, uh, you've ever seen in a dealership those are our two premium lines light and evo but he's scared to, to go away from the light stuff because he likes it so much so will uh in theory they're very similar they both utilize stretch materials they both are more minimalistic than uh some heavy duty stuff that you know that's out there maybe so they're they're really trying to accomplish the same things The big difference you're going to see with Evo is it has DST, which is Durable Stretch Technology, so it is going to be a little bit thicker material. It's built out of a, it's in a hex-based material. Um, We still have a, it's still super lightweight material, but it is a little tiny bit heavier than the light, and I think your durability is going to go up just a tiny bit on, on the Evo as well. So, same concept, same you know, customer, that's what we're going after the same guy that wants that stretch material. But I think your Evo DST is maybe built to last uh, or just built a little bit tougher than the light is. The light is so minimalist. We're, we're really trying to get every ounce of the, out of that gear that we can weight wise. So check them both out. I don't think you'll, you can go wrong though with the Evo if you want to try it. Uh, Tim Costers writes in, uh, he has a, a couple questions based on uh, the first round and Carson Brown made mention in a vlog that uh, he prefers to be in heat two versus heat one because the track is a little less wet from overwatering and he just feels like the dirt's a little bit more consistent and he can ride a little bit harder. I haven't ever been asked that, but it's certainly something that it's very relevant. It's something that riders often look at, especially the two fifties as Tim's mentioning here. So yes, this past weekend in St. Louis, not a big deal because they didn't really water the track so much. But a, an outdoor track like Anaheim, Vegas especially, Vegas is notorious for this, Tampa could be one. Uh, but any of the tracks that are outdoors where they're worried about traction because of uh, you know the sun beating down on it all day, the first heat race at night is always going to be slippery. There's just only so much they can do with applying a bunch of water to make it not slippery. It's just a part of life. The challenging thing is is that your tire selection is going to be based on a hard pack surface because the the base underneath that you know w- track watering is really hard pack. So you don't you're almost looking for a compromise, but you kind of can't. You have to go with that hard slippery base tire, um, but then you're just suffering in the first lap or two on a on a watered track. So. I can absolutely uh, relate to what Carson's mentioning that he prefers heat number two, because the track is perfect. It's got lines worked into it, but yeah, we've all been there. Uh, yeah, I can remember going back, let's go back to 2010. That's 10 years ago. Holy crap. But Vegas 2010 and the heat races, even in the 450 heat races were so damn muddy. I remember landing off triples with both feet out, just trying to, you know, stop from sliding around in the mud and just not crash. So, it's certainly relevant. It wasn't so much at St. Louis. A one, A two will be exactly the same thing. So watch for those guys in the heat race, the first 250 heat race at A two, slipping and sliding all over the place, and it's it's tough because you're trying to go as fast as you can. Uh, but yeah, you're you're also dealing with mud and super slippery icy turns as well. So it's we see guys crash all the time in that scenario because it's it's so critical in those you know five or six minute heat races to go fast. But you also have to worry about losing the front end, uh, especially the, the front end. You know, Losing the front end going into the turn is the most common issue that you'd have there. So thank you guys for your emails. I will email you guys the winner of the Pirelli tires this week. I'm going to spend a little bit more time looking into it, but I will, uh, I'll send you guys an email with, with the winner. So I appreciate you guys doing that. So last but not least, we have our power rankings. So we, uh, we've had a big shakeup this week. Uh, and these are week to week guys. I'm trying to weigh a balance of where they were last week, but also make it timely and, and really base off of what I saw on the weekend. So there's going to be a bit of compromise there. So bear with me last, but not least, he's still in the top 10, Justin Brayton. So yeah, like I said, two strong weekends, you know, solid is what probably the most appropriate word. Uh, he did take a step back, just because he he's had opportunities to be more at the front. He's at he's had podium opportunities and eight eight, not the end of the world. Um, but I think he's had a chance to do more, and I think he would he would tell you the same. He left a little bit on the table there, so have him at number ten, number nine. Uh, Zach Osborne, he moved up one spot this week uh, with that that fifth place finish. Definitely nice bounce back, and the only reason he's not up further is because listen, he was winning the race at one point, and he he drifted back to fifth. So you have to weigh that in too as opportunity versus the result. And I think he's going to get better. I'm I'm kind of wait and see with Zach. I think there are more top fives to come, but he's going to stay at number nine because of a brutally tough A one, and then moving backwards at St. Louis. I have Mookie at eight. Listen. He is truly disgusting in the whoops. It's unbelievable. I mean, he he makes people look stupid. He makes Supercross champions look stupid in the whoops. He's the best guy there is in the whoops right now, bar none. End of story. Period. So if he can use that to his advantage and keep building, as I said earlier, he's he's going to be move up. He's uh, he's eight now, but I could see that moving up to seven six five in the next few weeks. What I don't want to see him do is start throwing races away or having off nights, or moving backwards. That's what he's got to avoid. He's got to continue this momentum forward. Blake Baggett, I have at 7. Uh, you look at his results, not bad, 4-9. Uh, you know, frustrating weekend is the best way I could look at it because he had the speed. He absolutely had the pace to to have another top five. I, I believe he did. Uh, I think he had everything there other than a bad start and an inability to pass. So if you have to look at it and say, okay, what are the, what's the silver lining? What are the positives here? I think he would take that. I think he would take great speed and, listen, we left some points on the table versus we're, we're struggling with settings and nothing's going right, which is where it's been the last few years in January. So I think you have to always take the good with the bad and look at you know what would we rather be, would we rather be this year or last year. So I think they're on the right track. They just have a few things to work on. Number six, Eli Tomac. He's on the precipice and I and I went back and forth with Eli moving him further up. He's on the precipice of moving up quickly. I do think a win for Eli's coming. I picked him to win um, St. Louis didn't work out simply because of the start. I think if he went with Kenny on the first lap, it would have been a battle between those two for supremacy and, and to see who won St. Louis. So, yeah, he, he's he's on his way forward. All you Eli Tomac fans out there, don't freak out. He's coming. His, uh, you know, this silly power ranking that I do, he's going to be moving forward. I have no doubt about that. But on paper, 7-4, yeah, it's, I mean, that's a six. I, I'm, I'm okay with leaving him at six for right now. Jason Anderson, he's sneaky good right now. Uh, he would be the sleeper. I, I don't think he's going to win the title. I don't. But... He's quiet, he's under the radar, he's doing his thing, he's staying out of trouble, and he's right there. I mean, he's not far off. So if you want somebody that nobody's talking about right now, it's Jason Anderson, and we'll see what he does with it. If he goes out and wins Wednesday two, he's going to blow the roof off this thing because I, I, I do think he has the potential to get in the mix. And and I, don't, I didn't think he was there. I, I really didn't expect him to be as good as he's been. I thought he was going to be – Four to eight, I just thought he was going to be kind of ho-hum and, and be in there, but nothing crazy. He was better than that this weekend. He, he absolutely was. Shoot, he was better than that at day one He moved forward. He was really strong at the end of the races, which is critical. Uh, that that was one of my questions was how strong would he be at the end. So kudos to Jason Anderson. I, I'm sorry for doubting you, but he's sneaky good right now. He is he is a very quiet over-performer for me right now. So I have him at, him at five. I have Webb still at four. Um, that's tough with a, a really difficult result on the weekend. But I'm I'm leaning heavily on this flu that he has, and I think there are much better days ahead. He did make mention that the uh, the stadium being you know uh, not an open air environment really was tough for him. He struggled with the flu and and not having fresh air seemed to hurt him, hurt his breathing. So I'm going to take him at face value. I think, you know, everything has to be, um, they got to do everything they can to get him well this week. And I'm sure they are already. There's only so much you can do, but that's so critical. You saw how tough it is for him to ride sick because he didn't look like himself at all out there. I mean, he, he wasn't even in the battle at all. I mean, those guys rode away from him. So I'm going to leave him at four because I'm, I think he's much better than what we saw. I have AC at three and I, and I really battled with where to put AC here, but Listen, he's been the fastest guy six qualifying sessions in a row. Six times. That I don't know that that's ever happened. Uh, it's, and he's doing it, as I opened this podcast with, he's doing it effortlessly, and, he's, I, and it's really not close. Eight-tenths of a second's a lot in this class. Um, yeah, he tipped over the last lap, which is something I was worried about as far as throwing races away. But he got up and salvaged, and he's fine. So I really like what I see from Adam Cincerello. I think he is going to be a title contender. Um, and I think a win's coming. I, I think it's coming sooner than later. So I have him at three, and it's a really strong three for me. Ken Roxon is at two, and I almost put him one, but there's no way I could take it away from Barsha. I mean, he absolutely backed up his result from A1 with a second. So I have Kenny. He's got a six and a one on paper. Uh, it's really strong. He broke through. He finally got that win after so long. He, I mean, last year it was just st- – it had to be torturous for him to lose those races the way he did. But he finally got it done. A very emotional win for he and his wife and his team. I sat next to Lars Lindstrom, uh, their crew chief, the Team HRC crew chief, and he said they worked on the bike a lot this week, and they, they felt confident going into St. Louis. They didn't think it would, you know, there was going to be any residual effects or they didn't have any question marks. They felt great and ready to go, and, and I think you saw that play out. I mean, it was a pretty, pretty easy day for Kenny, all things considered. You know, you, you wonder why it's so difficult to win, and then all of a sudden it's just like, yeah, that was easy. So, look for more of the same, I think moving forward. I just don't know with how deep this field is if you can count on getting the start and running away every time. I think in the wins that are to come because I do think he'll win more races, I think it's going to be more of a battle at times. He's going to have to earn it every step of the way. So, we'll see how he bounces back and how he does in the the heat of battle. If he has the ability to withstand or excuse me, withstand an Eli Tomac barrage, right? Because I, I think he's coming. I think Cincerillo is going to have his day. I think Cooper Webb's going to have his day. So we'll see how that all plays out. I think will be the most interesting is if Barsha gets up there because Barsha's playing for keeps. I think this is a, a new Justin Barsha we're seeing. And, listen, you don't have to tell Justin Barsha when to get aggressive. And we've seen him do it with Kenny Roxon going back to 250 days. He wasn't scared to get uber aggressive with Ken Roxon. So that'll be fun to watch those two. I don't think there's a lot of love lost there. They just really haven't had anything to really, you know, kind of squabble about, but I think that's coming. I think those two are going to get into it at some point here, and that's going to be fun to watch. That'll be must see TV there. Last but not least, certainly not least. Your number one is Justin Barsha and he's earned it. I, I don't know what else to say. I mean, you put a, a one and a two on the board. You deserve to be number one in my power ranking that no one cares about. So, Great job, JB. I mean, it's been a long time coming to see the level you're at now, even with an A1 win last year. I think this was the Justin Barsha everybody expected in 2013 when he won a couple races there. So he's back. The question is, for how long? Can he sustain this? Can he do it down the stretch? Can he be your 2020 Monster Energy Supercross champion? I don't have an answer for you. I would say most likely not. Just, you know, I, I, I like to let history reflect what's going to happen in the future. I would say probably not, but yeah, I'm okay with him making me look wrong. That's what it's all about. I'm I would rather lean on things I've seen happen in the past than I would the what ifs. Um, having said that, I love watching Barsha do what he's doing. I like Justin Barsha. I remember talking to him as a kid. When I was racing, he would come watch me ride Supercross at, at uh MTF in Tallahassee. So that that I have a lot of history with him and he's always been cool to me, so um more power to him. I love to see more guys at the front. I love to see the parody. I love to not know who's going to win when the gate drops. So, um, uh, yeah, let's see more of that. Let's see, you know, let's see another winner at A 2 Let's see our third winner of the season at A two. I appreciate all you people listening. Please continue to send your emails to me, Jason 36 at aol.com. Let me know what I'm, you know, right on, wrong on ask your questions. I want to thank the sponsors again, Pirelli blends and fly racing. And uh, we will talk to you in a week. Thanks, everybody.